data-driven podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data-Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data-Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, business leader, or just someone curious about developing data skills, the Data-Driven Podcast is here to guide you along your journey. I'm your host and the co-founder of StoryIQ, Dominic Bohan. Today, we're going to talk about what kind of changes might be on the horizon for collecting audience data. Joining us is Christina Propkop, who is CEO and co-founder at IOTA, which is a global provider of audience solutions for digital marketing. Brands and advertisers leverage IOTA audience solutions to enrich insights, enhance personalization, and transform omni-channel targeting as the trusted global provider of audience solutions for digital marketing. Today, Christina and I are going to discuss how the audience data landscape is about to change. Okay, here's my conversation with Christina Propkop, the CEO and co-founder at IOTA. What is audience data? So if you look at what audience data is and what it means to the market, audience data is taking different attributes that users have opted in to, to use or they're being collected from people's journeys or from their offline behaviors and using that those different attributes to put them into different segments, which say a bit more about their, maybe their sociodemographic background, maybe their interests in certain topics or what types of products they own or what type of content and interests they have. So it is a really quite a broad area, which is, you know, I think what makes it hard for a lot of marketers to really, you know, get into the details of, okay, how do I gain access to and use that type of data across all of my strategies, you know, depending on there might be audience data that's coming from online websites or audience data that's coming from offline data providers or from panel-based, you know, market research companies. So it's quite a diverse space and one that has, has a lot of potential to help marketers gain more insights into their customers and use those insights to better speak to them, better drive them down the funnel, look at better prospecting. Thanks. I think that's a great working definition. So we've got a bit of an understanding of what audience data is. It could really be anything is my takeaway that's useful for marketing to an audience that tells us attributes about our audience and allows us to segment them. Is that a uh, reasonable summary? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now the exciting part, how is this landscape changing <laughs> or about to change? I think the easier question may be, how is it not going to change? Because there's change on so many different levels right now. It's quite a defining moment in our space. So how it's changing, obviously, first and foremost, privacy. You know, that's particularly as a global audience company, we are dealing with the right changes in regulations, you know, not only across Europe or across all of the variants that's coming out of the U U.S. between different states, but also across markets like Australia and across the Asian landscape as well. So for us, that's really the most important change that's happening that we have to make sure that we stay on top of. It's something we've always been, you know, try to be on the forefront of and making sure that everything that we do is within the regulations and, and even beyond the regulations that are, that are in certain markets. So privacy is the first one. 
and again, you know, I think this is the interesting thing, the way that the landscape is changing. These are all changes that are not one-time changes. These are all, I would almost call them more evolutions. So privacy is a prime example. You know, it has started in, you know, the big push was with GDPR across Europe and now, and Australia had, you know, very specific regulation that came out. America does. And this will continue to develop and continue to be refined and continue to expand to other markets as we all go along. Would you say this is a global trend where it's all going in the one direction of stricter regulatory regimes? Yes, I would say all stricter, but different levels of strictness and different levels of definition of what's considered personal information. Is the EU still the strictest? Yes, the EU is still the strictest. So what we generally do when we're looking at how do we develop our data sets and our processes we do you still use that as the benchmark of, you know, kind of the lowest common denominator to make sure that we're encompassing all of the regulatory requirements in what we do. And then, you know, obviously being able to adjust that to other markets as they adapt. Right. If you can make it in the EU, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> exactly. So then if you look at other changes in the landscape, if you look at the changing landscape of cookies, that leads you down into the question of, identifiers is how are we actually, what identifiers are we going to use to both collect data, process data, and activate against this data, which also links back into the privacy landscape of, you know, what could be, you know, what will these future identifiers and alternative identifiers be for us as an industry? Because some of, you know, Email is tightly regulated. The question of IP is that will that be one of the next IP addresses if that will be the next to be regulated? So that question about where do we go with the changes in identifiers used in our ecosystem, that's really a huge undertaking right now for the industry as a whole. It sounds tough. How are you adapting to that when basically it sounds like what you're saying is more and more of the identifiers that you could once use to understand who an audience is, say, visiting a web page via cookies, is becoming off limits. Yes, coming off limits or changing in the scale with which we can collect and, and use them. The way that we've always looked at the space, and I think it also stems from the fact that we, we deal with so many different types of data in our marketplace like I said earlier, between offline data or market research data based on a seed audience or offline data that's being onboarded against a geolocation. Because of the great variety of different data we've been, data assets we've been working with over the years, we've built the platform to be interoperable in between incoming and outgoing identity signals. And I think, by the way, this is not unique to us. You know, I really think the only way forward in this industry is to build your technologies to be as interoperable as possible. So if you look at it, it means, so can I bring data in that's connected to an email or a cookie or an alternate identifier like one from ID5 or from the Trade Desk UUID? Can I use a, an IP address? Can I use hashed email addresses? So you really have to be able to ingest data and based on any of those identifiers. And then on the other hand, we've done a proprietary in-house, but there are companies that specialize in this, is building that linkage to be able to understand 
how an incoming cookie ID links to a maid or how an incoming hash email can be used for targeting on the trade desk UUID, for example. Then the next step is that translation of IDs. And then the last step is making sure that our platform as a data company can then distribute the data or put that data into our clients' hands based on the IDs that they need in the end platforms that they're using. It's a complex undertaking because there are so many, these platforms have to be able to communicate with each other and they're all working with multiple types of identifiers. That's not going to change. That's going to be the way forward. So can I break it into two problems? Problem one is simply matching these disparate data sources and doing that accurately. And it sounds like there may be some methods that are imperfect there, but at least reasonable for guessing how these attributes match together. And then problem two is even if we can match it together, are we allowed to do that? And are we allowed to use that data? Is that a very broad way of capturing the problem? And should we drill into each of those? Yeah, that is. And and the other one I would add on top of it is just the technological capability to do that and the impact on scale that that has. So why don't we start with how it's possible? I think a lot of our audience would be very interested in how we get all this data from these different sources and match it all together in a reasonable way. Sure. So if you look at the collection of data, as I mentioned, this happens in a lot of different disparate types of sources. So that can be pure online touch points across websites where users looking at different types of content or looking at different price comparison portals or something that will indicate an intent to purchase something. Now, the way that works today, obviously, is very dependent on cookies. But in the future, that will be linking to, okay, well, can we collect that data based on a publisher-generated ID that's based on a, on a login, on a hash email? on an alternative identifier. So that's one type of data collection. Again, depending on where that user is, the level of consent that has to be given and being able to track and have an auditable trail of that consent is also very important. So that's one type of data. Let's say another type of data is, you know, we work with a lot of offline data companies that have data on purchase behaviors or sociodemographic information based on where someone lives in broad geographic areas. Now, that data, for example, we don't collect that based on identifier, but that's then collected as an, as an offline data store and can be linked to a profile based on a digital input that we have of where's that person most likely have their residence, like in a broad geo region that's large enough to not have any threats on the risk of any sort of personal identifiable information. Right. Like this person lives here. Like how broad is the sort of geo area that you're aiming to segment to? That's dependent on country. You know, a lot of them have rules around the number of households that have to be in a defined bucket in order to have that be considered personally identifiable or not. You know, if you look at, for example, market research companies, they have a very strong opted in base to collect on, you know, either a hash email or a cookie or an alternate ID based on the pan, you know, the opt in of a panel that they're producing. What's a panel? A panel. So if you have companies who are who are operating consumer panels, so, you know, if you might be signing up to take part in a questionnaire about something 
or if you know there are there are panel companies that have panelists that are permanently in their database that they contact with different questions about purchase behaviors or their interests or what their product ownership looks like and things like that. That's another classic example of you know a very you know very clean data set that can be collected and, and used based on multiple identifiers from one source. Like the hard thing is for somebody who's a marketer and trying to understand the ins and outs of how this is all connected is there is a lot of variance about how data can be collected and at what scale that it can be collected. A lot to unpack there. So let's go a little bit deeper into it. The way data collection works is a lot dependent on the type of data source whose audiences are being brought on uh, online and being made available for marketers. So the way that a data set from an offline data company, like an Experian or a GFK or a YouGov, you know, market research companies, the way that's brought online is very different than online publishers. You know, so maybe like a travel portal or a special interest website that people are visiting where we can gather insight into what their interests are. So the collection is really very broad to begin with in the different types of data. Now, I'll walk you through an example of where where the real value is in being able to take it from one source and make it available in another channel. And actually what's really most valuable is in multiple channels. So let's take the example of, of market research data, right? You know, so they have panels and they're collecting information data from real people who are responding to questionnaires who are sharing their preferences for brands. They're sharing information about their, their intent to book trips or buy certain products and talking about their product ownership. So that's a really valuable data asset that these market research companies have. Now, the problem is, how are they collecting it? So they're collecting it from a panel that they have tagged where they can share as an identifier with us, you know, a cookie. So they can choose multiple identifiers because they have a close opted-in relationship with these users. They can share multiple identifiers with us. So it could be a cookie. It could be an alternate ID. It could be a hash email. So then that data gets, in the example of market research, because it's a very refined and smaller scale set of data, we then can onboard that data and attach that then to Let's say, for example, in today's world, let's pretend that cookies will be around for a little bit just to give you this example. If we bring that data in attached to a cookie, the value that it brings to be able to connect that to other identifiers is through the ability to be able to connect that data to a hashed email that may be used in for social marketing across social media. We can connect that to a maid that can be used for mobile targeting. We can get to connect that to, you know, also across this system into still cookie targeting to be able to, you know, be able to target that user on a website or, or online videos. And the real value there is taking one common currency of an audience targeting segment and as a marker being able to use that same that same targeting and create the same view of that user and the same insight across all of the channels that you're marketing across and the true value there is really the interoperability of it and the ability to extend that into omnichannel environments which can't be done without multiple identifiers but this will only work if they've opted into one of these market research company panels, right? 
But can we extrapolate what we've learned from that to a broader user base? Of course, yeah. There is the possibility to also use that seed data, which actually in the market research case, the seed data is used to create audiences that look like audiences that are based on the characteristics of, of the panel respondents. What kind of volumes are we talking about? Or maybe we could even almost think about it as a percentage of the entire population, let's say for the United States. What percentage of American adults would have opted into some sort of panel where they voluntarily provided this more detailed information? Oh, that is a good question. I have to admit, I do not have an answer to that. But it depends also on who that panel belongs to, because there's multiple companies. But if we look at, why don't we look at another example where, for us, if we look at B2B marketing, and we were recently acquired by Dun & Bradstreet, a US-based but global company, market leaders in terms of business data. And it's a very similar value proposition in the B2B world where Dun & Bradstreet has a wealth of information about businesses, what industries they are, what their credit rating looks like, how many people work there, and also has contact level data that can help marketers understand what individuals' contacts work at those companies and have certain types of roles. So in terms of like, you know, the value of using audience targeting data in an omnichannel environment, the ability is as done with Dun & Bradstreet as a data company, it allows working with it, it was a large part of the reason for the acquisition. It allows them to take that business data which has traditionally been used primarily in offline and only direct marketing use cases, it allows them to take this very valuable data and then bring it online and attach it because they have, you know, we're always looking for the match point of, can we match a cookie to a cookie? Can we match a hashed email to a hashed email? So we can onboard this data around businesses based on both IP addresses or hashed emails of the users and then enable B2B marketers to use that firmographic information or you know the account-based audiences that they've created across any any channel where they're trying to reach their prospects and customers. So IOTA started as primarily B2B, is that right? So IOTA is a data marketplace. So we enable data and bring data to market that covers both the B2C and B2B environments. So have you been able to enrich your data by working with DNB? Well, what we've been able to do, I would say more is work with the DNB data and create more and more powerful digital targeting, audience targeting products with their data. So they were a partner before acquisition, but now you know, where we were just onboarding and, and helping them monetize data as an audience segments that they had. But now we're really working with those data assets ourselves to look at how do we expand that out and have more granular audiences? How do we build international targeting products off of the data that they hold and looking how we expand that? Awesome. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, 
head over to datadrivenpod.com where we have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And if you want to share your most compelling use cases for data, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is StoryIQ on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is at Dominic on Twitter. If you haven't already subscribed and you want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow. That's all for today. But remember, until next time, when it comes to data, less is more.